What are you doing out in the snow? It's 32 degrees below zero Celsius and my dad is working hard looking beyond the extents of hypothermia, hypochondria and all the elements combined, he works to build a fence. A true servant, a true worker, a true exhibit of hard work and ethics. This is my father in whom I am well pleased. Hey, it's me again. Does your job still suck? Are you still mad at your job and therefore life sucking? Then you should join the Bitcoin podcast Slack, where the people there don't suck, or at least their jobs don't. So, in essence, their lives don't either. Join the Slack. Welcome to the Bitcoin Podcast. This show is intended for information purposes only, but we're not experts. We're just two guys within the Bitcoin community. Bitcoin is an experiment in the separation of money and state. You'll be surprised how many will support that. And adoption is the only thing that matters. Hey, everybody. Welcome to... A very, very special episode of the Bitcoin Podcast. This is episode number 72, and I am your first host, Marcello. It's house number 50. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. <laughs> no, no backstory on that, or that's just, we're just no, doing it? We're no. just doing it. No, I was- I don't give a I, shit. I don't give a shit, you know? I see him over there looking, I'm poking pride. I don't give a shit. Anyways, <laughs> the reason I'm doing that voice is because I just watched the first ever UFC match I've watched with Marcello. He's been trying to get me to watch MMA for a while. And it was UFC 200. There was an interview with one Nate Diaz. And it was just ridiculous. Instead of using um and like as a filler, he would say, I don't give a shit. Just like that. So it was a really weird interview. 
and I could not stop laughing. He was like, yeah, I see Conor McGregor up there looking at me. I don't give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, let's let's do I lost my bet, too. Yeah. It's just not a good day. Not a good day. Anyway. Yeah. It's it's a good day, though, if you're using escrowmybits.com. Yep. Did you know that? I didn't know. It's fast. It's super easy. And you should give a shit because it just takes three steps. But I don't give a shit. (laughs) You register and deposit your Bitcoin. Seller will ship the item. Buyer checks the goods. And then they will release the funds. And they also offer Bitcoin escrow with a locked exchange rate. So I'm talking euros. I'm talking... Yen from and China, <laughs> Chinese money. I'm talking that you Canadian money, yuan, USD. They got you covered. It's no problem. Uh, they're going to charge you a small flat escrow fee of 1% on all the transactions. And they even offer you the ability to split the fee with the other party. They've thought of everything. So we want yeah. you to no longer be any excuses on why not to use escrow. So start the escrow process. Go to their website. Sign up for that newsletter. Stay up to date. That's escrowmybits.com. And uh, uh, another great way uh, is, you know, you can donate to the podcast. Go to our website. What's up, man? Jingle. Oh, that's right. Escrow your shit with escrowmybits.com. Yep. That's going to be stuck in your head all week. Yep. Uh, another great way is to donate the podcast is go to our website. Um, that's, uh, the Bitcoin podcast.com. We have a nice little purse.io banner, uh, cause yep. we know you love, you know, Amazon. And if you are on Amazon and you're going to do some purchases, you might as well just click on the banner and save between 15 to 25%. And they're going to give us a little love, a little kickback. So show us a little love yep. and save yourself some money. Um, you know, that's it. So this is a very special yeah. episode. Um, Corey is, uh, he's indulging himself right now. So he's not here at the moment. Um, he's watching the fights with us. He's watching the fights. Um, so it's just me and D kind of holding it down. Uh, there's no round table, but we have, when we first started this, this, this podcast, you'll see a lot of podcasts starting off that'll have like a very important guest for episode one and two. And that's usually because you know, somebody we were just three friends that decided to do a podcast and we've built up enough fame and recognition and hard work to now we're getting the type of guests that we dreamed of getting when we first started. Um, we've been trying to get Andreas Antonopoulos on the show for a while now. And the time has finally come. The stars have aligned and, um, he's literally a guy that needs no introduction. Yep. No introduction necessary. Um, so I guess, um, here it is. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, welcome to the big one. Thank you so much for having me. I should probably do a few introductions so that you know who you're talking to. Yeah, I'm, I'm Marcello. I'm the one that uh, initiated contact to get you on here. And uh, it's you've been kind of the white whale, obviously, to be on the show. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I, I've never been complimented by call, being called a whale before. but <laughs> <laughs> Only on our podcast will you be called a whale. <laughs> Sounds good. And uh, I'm Dimitri, another host of the show. Yep. Hi, Dimitri. My name's Corey. I'm the uh, the the last host of the show. 
Uh, I, I personally would like to thank you because you're the one. Maybe I'll save it for the podcast unless you're already rolling, D. I've been rolling. You know how okay. I do. Well, we're just going to go ahead and get into it. Uh, I'd like to personally thank you because although you weren't the person to introduce me to Bitcoin, your talks were the ones that made me kind of become a fanatic about Bitcoin. So it, I now finally have the opportunity to thank you for, for putting out so much good educational material and explaining the concepts in a way that really made me understand and see the potential behind what's going on and what we can do with it. Oh, you're very welcome. It was, I can assure you it was all my pleasure. Yeah. And, uh, and this is, this is Stephen Mackey. I'm not a host of the show, the Bitcoin podcast. Um, Hi, Steve. but you do know who I am, Andreas, and you know, I'm a big fan and you know, I don't need to tell you that. Uh, you know, we, we chat on Twitter on a daily basis almost. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. So, so, so you, I'm, I'm here because I just love hearing you talk and I'm here to just maybe give some uh, uh, nice, uh, additional commentary if I can. Cool beans. I'll keep it relaxed. So, uh, hey, Andreas, uh, where are you going to be this weekend for a, for a Halloween party? Which, which crowd are you going to be a part of? I'm going to be in Las Vegas. Dang. That's the place to be. And I actually haven't been to the Las Vegas Bitcoin meeting. Uh, it's a pretty small community, but, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Are you going to be there on Sunday? I want to be there on Sunday. Um, I'm actually not going to be on here on Sunday. I'm already moving on to my next destination by Sunday. Oh, man. He's <laughs> a man on the move. <laughs> so how much, how much time do you actually spend at home? It seems like you're always somewhere different talking, you know, evangelizing Bitcoin and talking to people about uh, different aspects of different cryptocurrencies. So last year I spent uh, just over 220 days on the road. Um I'm expecting this year I'm going to spend just over 300 days on the road. So pretty much I no longer do home within <laughs> um, what I, I'm, I'm, I'm living in Airbnb more or less full time now. And uh, I intend to make that my, my normal style from now on. Cause it's, it's, it's much more convenient. And so instead of uh, returning home or to a home base, I'll, I'll just go forward to the next event or, um, so are, you, that I'm are you anything like Vitalik where he carries most of all his prized possessions in a duffel bag with him? Um, yeah, my, my entire life now fits in, in two suitcases, uh, 49.5 pounds each. I'm not, <laughs> wow. I'm not joking. I don't have a storage locker. Uh, and I don't have an extra location. So literally everything I own is now in two suitcases. Mm. With your background, I would imagine that that's not something you probably saw coming. Uh, is this, is this the life that, um, you wanted to have early on or did it, was it kind of thrust upon you? Like, is this something that you? Oh, I've always had a wanderlust. I've always been just um, amazed by travel and visiting as many places as possible. That was something that I did long before Bitcoin. Bitcoin just enabled me to do this on a much more intense level. And, um, and I absolutely love it. You know, I have very little attachment to stuff. And the less stuff I have, the more liberating it has become. 
Is it getting easier and easier to use Bitcoin all these different places? I mean, it has to be. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, <laughs> the comparison is funny. People are like, oh, Bitcoin's difficult to use. Uh, like, you must be new here. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I don't have any problems. <laughs> no, like, um, when I first started, uh, there were no exchanges. Then there was one exchange. Then, um, you know, it, nobody took it. And now I have two debit cards. and. There are three or four hundred exchanges where I can exchange it. There's local bitcoins everywhere where I can exchange it. Um, no, it's 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 very easy to use. Uh, I mean, for an early adopter and for someone who's committed to this uh, experiment, it's it's become a lot easier now. And even tools like the the Plutus app, which will be coming online probably pretty soon, that even makes it easier to not have to worry about transferring your money into the local fiat if if you're using the three currencies that they're currently providing yeah i'll tell you with the debit cards i have um i don't actually convert until the moment of sale um and so the money is uh, in bitcoin it's converted only at the moment of sale the, the fees because of visa are still not perfect but it's very convenient. And I'll, the funny thing is, uh, you know, because I travel, I tried to tell my bank, listen, I'm, I'm traveling a lot, so please don't, don't block my car due to fraud. <laughs> and, and they do every time. And I call them up and I says, I, I told you I was going to be traveling. They said, well, sir, you need to give us 24 hour notice um, before each one of your trips. And I said, okay. So I'd like to give you 24 hour notice. Um, I'm leaving tomorrow. And I'm not coming back this year. Um, I'm going to be traveling continuously between now and January. How's that? <laughs> like, continuously. It's like all the t I don't know what, what you have a problem understanding here. I have 17, I'm going to be in 17 countries. Do you want a list? Here's a list. And, um, you know, American Express doesn't have a problem. It's it's just hilarious, and they block it every time. And so every time they block it, I I pull out one of my Visa uh, my uh, Bitcoin debit cards, and guess what? It works. It works at ATMs. It works in stores. It never gets blocked. And so you know, as I've as I've said many times before, um, one of the best ways to advertise Bitcoin is to experience traditional banking. <laughs> The comparison is never flattering. <laughs> you know, it, this is. Would you call this a a, a product of um, them not being able to unblock or open up your credit card based on the, their their lack of infrastructure? Uh, no, it's a, it's a fun. Uh, that's the thing. They can't fix this problem. Um, the yeah. problem is that they've designed a system that is based on a pull architecture, meaning that. Um, every time I give my card, I'm giving them all of the authorization required to make an unlimited forever number of withdrawals from my account, um, which makes it very easy for someone to simply get those credentials and reuse them. So um, there's that. Uh, essentially, that design architecture is susceptible to a replay attack, as we would call it in security, right? You can take the same credentials and charge again and again and again. Um, every transaction is uh, tied to identity, and the identifiers that are used are easy to steal, so it's subject to identity theft. And so the entire system is broken. Um, as a system, it cannot scale 
because it will always be subject to identity theft. Its security model is fundamentally broken by design. And you can't fix that. You can't fix that without re-architecting the system completely. So as long as credit cards work the way credit cards work, um, you, you can't improve on that model. So they have to pass that risk um, somewhere. And what they do is they pass it in the form of inconvenience to me, um, as well as higher fees. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that same risk is why I don't use my Bitcoin debit card very much. I was wondering what happens if, you know, it gets stolen and somebody's swiping away with my Bitcoin debit card. Oh, it's really my simple. My Bitcoin debit card has a has a withdrawal limit, and I get a, an instantaneous um, message whenever a charge is made at the authorization stage. Um, and it's very simple. I can simply go in on my mobile app and move all of the balance out. Done. It will take me uh, three seconds, and I drain that account completely from my end, um, and they can't do anything. So, um, yeah, it's, like it's such great. a Padawan. My, my card actually, cause I have a shift card. It's actually protected me from like a double charge from a restaurant just recently. Cause like it, it notifies me immediately once it was paid and then they paid and charged my card again. And then they had to go back and adjust it. So actually, I mean, like it, it, it's weird. Like when you combine like the two, like a little bit of traditional banking with like these sort of, these sort of cards that allow you to shift and, you know, convert payments with Bitcoin, it's sometimes the usability in the UX. Im- improves with yes they, they actually each bring their own parts to the equation so um bitcoin makes credit cards a bit better and credit cards make bitcoin a bit shittier so what you get is the average <laughs> which is a slightly better shitty experience than credit cards and a slightly shittier experience than bitcoin <laughs> but uh <laughs> i've never looked at it like that but i will forever now <laughs> are we gonna ask any hard hitters can i ask a hard hitter sure please well uh i think a couple months back we interviewed james d'angelo and he's pretty passionate about this uh i think it's he pretty much believes it's a s- systemic risk uh the the global uh, the centralization of mining in china and not only now just the centralization there's also like the transactional volume is like overwhelmingly from China. Is this, I mean, Bitcoin supposed to be decentralized. Is, is this a systemic risk to Bitcoin in the long term? Well, first of all, I don't think it's a, it's a trend that is a long term trend because I think some of the fundamentals have changed dramatically. It's not surprising to me that transactional volume, um, is coming primarily from, from China. And it's something that three or four years ago I had in the very early days of Bitcoin, I had predicted, I said, you know, you have to appreciate the fact that if Bitcoin starts becoming a global phenomenon, then it will represent the average person. And the average person is a 23-year-old Han Chinese male. That is the average person on the planet if you were to just average everything out, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not surprising to me. Of course, the there's a billion and a half people in that country is, um, you know, we're, we're not, we're not, uh, the United States is, is a province by comparison. Um, and so even if a tiny percentage of the population shows some interest, it immediately creates a massive influx of, of activity. That's a great thing. Um, I think, you know, the other trend, which is the mining centralization, 
to me is is primarily influenced by the fact that we've gone through these improvements of a thousandfold to ten thousandfold each year from CPU to GPU to FPGA to ASIC. And that enormous speed of uh, performance increase meant that the, the pipeline uh, for an ASIC or a piece of mining equipment was extremely short, meaning that you produce it in a factory and you load it on the truck. The minute you load it on the truck, it starts getting obsolete, right? And now you've got maybe, maybe two and a half to three months of usable life. So you have to get it off that truck, plugged into something as quickly as possible, and therefore the most reasonable place to, to do it is within 100 miles of where, where it got manufactured um, and immediately exploit it with cheap electricity. That drove a lot of centralization. So the fact that the shelf life of this equipment was less than three months um, and that you, you really couldn't export it, you really couldn't build it and transport it long distances or delay its production use, which is why most of the companies that, that manufactured mining equipment ended up becoming hashing companies themselves because they couldn't really sell it. By the time they got it through a distribution pipeline, it was already obsolete. Well, guess what? That game is over. Um, we hit 16 nanometer, which is more small, and we're now going to go from um, 10,000 percent increases or 100,000 percent increases per year uh, to a 100 percent increase every 18 months. Now, Moore's law in every other area of computing is is break, breakneck speed, but compared to what we've had in mining, it's now a snail's pace. That means that the equipment will now go from a shelf life of three months to a shelf life of two years, a productive shelf life, which means that the pipeline where you can transport that equipment and make it useful has expanded dramatically. It means that you can do consumer applications, and it means that a lot of the factors that previously provided concentrated operations now become concentrated risk. So racking 100,000 of these chips in a single warehouse um, previously was the only way you could make profit. Now it's it's one way that you expose yourself to enormous risk because if there's a power failure, um, you know, that will take down all of them, right? If instead you distribute 100,000 of these chips to 100,000 Raspberry Pi devices running in 100,000 residential kitchens to run a toaster or a water heater or something like that, you decentralize the risk. So I think we're going to see a reversal of this trend. I think we're going to see the re-decentralization of mining, um, or at least certainly a massive reduction in the pressure to centralize. Um, I'm not as worried as James is. I think the long-term trend's played out, and, and we're at peak centralization of mining. And even at peak centralization of mining, it's fairly well balanced against the pressure of having most of the merchants, most of the developers, most of the uh, wallets, uh, and many of the users in other countries. Um, and I think now we're going to see a reversal of this trend. Yeah. Yeah, he said that Mining power concentration in China is, is dangerous to the Bitcoin network. Do you agree with that? No, I don't. Um, and uh, I don't for a number of reasons. I think people really overestimate the, 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 the impact that can have. We're not seeing any attempts to uh, mess with transactions in any serious way. Um, 
the the consensus function has multiple constituencies. It's not just miners who decide. It's miners, developers, exchanges, wallets, merchants. Um, and so if if one of the constituencies of consensus goes rogue, the others will very quickly change things to bring them back in line. And so this is in, in Bitcoin, a lot of the power of consensus seems to lie with one group until they try to exercise it in a way that offends everybody else, at which point they, that, that power is very fickle. Um, so I don't think it's, a, it's an existential threat. I also think that in many cases, we underestimate both the capitalist attitude and the power that these miners have within their local environments. Um, you, you know, I, I would guess that in, in these places where they've put this mining, um, they've brought in hundreds of millions of dollars worth of uh, money into these rural communities um, where they're doing all of the mining. I would guess at this point they own uh, every police officer from the bottom up to the county level. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and so they are a power unto themselves in these environments, right? Mm -hmm. And so the the idea of, of some magistrate marching in and making demands of the Chinese miners, I think, is is um, not really realistic. Mm. You know, something I'm I'm uh, kind of curious to see if this is if this is the trend of what will happen in the future, which I I, I agree with you on in terms of. Um, the hardware being essentially being blocked by Moore's law and catching up to, to how that works. We're going to have another decentralization uh, of development for, for miners currently because it's been catching up to Moore's law. All of the focus of increasing the hash power has been coming from changing over the hardware infrastructure. Whereas if you get caught up to Moore's law and you're stuck with, the hardware that's at the bleeding edge, then you're subject to the constraints that all other people at Moore's Law are subject to, which is which is good software writing, which isn't really focused that much on on uh, on mining. You have cooling and all the other issues that people then try to you know tweak and change to make sure they're getting the most out of their mining equipment. It's not yeah, just I, I wait six the, months the and get the one. best equipment. And, and the other one that people underestimate is the issue of um, um, energy cost, right? At, at the moment, a lot of the energy cost things are influenced by by the fact that they can get in many places in China either free energy. I just read a report that some of the mines are stealing energy from the grid, um, <laughs> or they get very long term contracts with very favorable terms. But one of the things we haven't thought about is is the idea, or I've, I've seen it written up a bit, the idea of using Bitcoin as a, a an energy transfer mechanism uh, or an energy storage mechanism. So imagine you have um, a wind farm or hydroelectric or solar farm in places like the United States where we're seeing an enormous investment in renewable energy now. And um, the, part of the problem is that these things produce energy almost continuously, um, and yet that doesn't always match the demand. So you have supply that doesn't match demand. And what do you do with the excess supply? Um, today, nothing, right? So if you're producing more than the demand, you can't always distribute that back to the grid or find other places to sink that energy. You, you don't have batteries to store it. Um, it's very difficult to, to store energy. 
if you redirected all of the excess capacity that you're producing without demand paying for it into Bitcoin mining, essentially you're storing that energy in the form of, of Bitcoin mining, that the, the excess capacity you have. And then, um, and then you monetize it that way, which would allow you essentially later on to buy energy at peak times to supplement um, when you have less capacity. And, and so it, it provides an interesting energy transfer mechanism. Uh, I think we could see the influence now that Moore's law has been reached. We could see the influence of, of these kinds of um, models for uh, mining with excess uh, with excess capacity um, out of uh, renewable sources of energy, and we'll see. Let's see what happens with the halving. Um, we'll see how that changes the dynamic. This is a market that's moving very fast, so we'll see how it plays out. And a consequence of that would be watching, I think, a variable in the hash rate, a, a large like variability in the hash rate. If only times when you're producing too much power. Would you be allocating that extra power into mining and then elsewhere not? So you'd see if if this were to grow drastically, you'd see a lot of variability in the in the in the total hash rate of Bitcoin. Would you not? Not, not if it's distributed uh, on a worldwide basis, because huh? a lot of capacity issues have to do with day night cycles. Yeah. And as long as you have an even distribution of, of, around the world, um, you know, just just between um, major points in uh, the U.S., Europe, and and Australia, you would have I enough variability there. I mean, ideally, what you'd want to have is um, some way of of calculating difficulty that is averaged across, I don't know, two weeks. That would make sense. I wonder if they decided that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, see what you did there. Talking about the uh, the happening, it's coming up. It's like almost forty eight hours away, something like that. It's close. I can taste it, but it's Bitcoin. Like if it spurs another round of adoption where people are FOMOing out of control, is Bitcoin ready for that? Cause I could get on, you know, Bitcoin Reddit right now and I'm <laughs> going to see 30 posts about my transactions been stuck for days and I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, you know, is Bitcoin ready? Is it, do we need uh, to update no. soon or? No, it's, 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 no, it's not ready. Um, and. Nice. And uh, and that's okay, and that's okay. And what we're going to see is again, we're going to see the FOMO. It's going to create <clears throat> a nice little spike. Uh, there won't be enough short selling pressure because the derivatives markets are not as developed as they need to be, and the margin trading isn't as developed. There won't be enough downward pressure short selling, which means that that spike will get a bit out of control. Um, it will lead to a giant bubble. Uh, which will then um, collapse back to more reasonable levels. Um, but of course, on the way down, it will overshoot and and hit lower levels than where it was climbing to in the beginning. Uh, and we'll have our seventh Bitcoin bubble. Um, uh, so far, you know, most people only noticed the 2013 one, which in terms of percentages wasn't wasn't even in the top three <laughs> in size. Um, but this is the behavior of Bitcoin. It goes through these cycles where you have exuberance, um, you know, buying into the uh, momentum, fear of uh, missing out, as you called it, and it gets too high and then collapses back. Now, the good news is that every time it collapses back, it collapses back at a level that is on average higher than where it started. 
uh, and then it prepares itself for the next round um, of bubbles. As long as you don't have exchange failures, um, trading failures, or massive steps in between, slow down the the adoption for a year or two, as we saw with Gox. I, I'm not worried about that. That's going to be the natural progression. Bitcoin is not going to smoothly, and I wish it would, but it won't smoothly rise to the levels that it's supposed to based on market fundamentals. It's going to be driven by exuberance and irrational greed and um, and speculation, and it's going to bounce around like like an inflatable on um, on a wavy sea, you know? Um, and that's fine because I'd rather be on the inflatable that's bouncing up and down than be on the uh, very, very stable Titanic of the U.S. dollar uh, that is uh, very steady uh, and steadily heading towards a giant iceberg. Um, this is the nature of Bitcoin, and you, we just have to accept it. And as part of that, you're also going to see a capacity crunch, which will lead more wallets to have to improve their uh, fee management strategies. Um, and we've seen, you know, the side effect of all of this has been that over the last 10 months, uh, wallets has developed much, much more sophisticated fee calculation and fee management strategies before they were completely dumb and they're getting better and better at doing that. And that's a great thing. Um, and it's part of what you need in order to make the network more robust to both denial of service and surges in demand. So I'm I'm not really worried about the fact that um, demand is going to uh, temporarily be greater than we can handle, <laughs> and you know maybe maybe that's okay. Maybe that puts some limits on how high the bubble can go. Mm. Yeah, some nice some nice uh, uh, artificial um, constraints in there are going to be nice because during the whole. During this whole course that you just sort of like laid out um, when you were talking about like what's going to happen with the price and sort of how the markets are going to move somewhere in there. There's going to be a lot of irrationality somewhere in there. Someone's going to say Bitcoin died um, somewhere in there. Like it's it's like it's a it's the typical like just sort of like soup of like things that happen in between every major progression in like Bitcoin adoption. And I would argue that in order for Bitcoin to reach adoption, it has to go through the phases of these massive bubbles. It has to go through these phases of people losing money. It has to go through phases of uh, people having infighting and arguing because ultimately it's the only thing that pushes us to the edges to continue to innovate and to continue to build on this platform on the, on the original vision where we want to you know, have this like transactional platform that everyone can use. And I think that um, like a lot of people, when they sort of go about just like speculating, like, oh, the Bitcoin price is going to do this. The Bitcoin price is going to do that. You know, it's followed this historically. I like to I don't like to think about Bitcoin in the future. Like, oh, this like I like to predict what's happening with Bitcoin really in the present, because the only way to really understand where Bitcoin is doing is to look at what people are doing now. And base that off of sentiment on what people want Bitcoin to be in the future. So it would yeah. be there, there's 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 no way to simulate this. This is not a simulation. This is a real life experiment, and I think people underestimate the value of that. Um, you know, you can talk about whether proof of stake or proof of work can scale, and um, how we can scale layer two networks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's there's only one network that is currently doing that. Um, at scale as a real live experiment with real users. 
and the value that that delivers in terms of learning um, and the opportunities to to learn, improve, and, and iterate in a way that allows us to get to the next level and the next level after that. That's enormously valuable. Um, there's there's a lot of theory out there as to how to do it better, uh, but there's only there's only one environment in which we're we're doing it. And so the other thing I would like to kind of bring to the table here is we're talking about, you know, whether Bitcoin is dead and where Bitcoin will be in a year. Um, and to me, the, the bigger thing that's happening is, is not Bitcoin. The, the bigger thing that's happening is the broader economy. You know, if you look at what's happening, Brexit <clears throat> created a bit of a kerfuffle. You've got um, <laughs> massive word. devaluation of the pound that is driving another devaluation of the yuan, which will drive another devaluation of the U.S. dollar, et cetera, et cetera, in this race to the bottom. Um, the Fed now has a new reason why it can't raise rates. It always has a reason why it can't raise rates. Um, and it is firmly in control of the monetary supply as long as you don't ask it to raise rates. Um, and... And this this environment is happening in, in every central bank. They're all locked at the zero bound with no hope of, of actually raising rates in a devaluation race to the bottom. Italian banks are failing. Uh, Deutsche Bank is on the precipice of collapsing in a massive $60 trillion uh, derivatives explosion or implosion. Um, the European Union is falling apart. China is crash landing its economy after two decades of crazy growth and now can't seem to squeeze out the growth they need to avoid, um, you know, what could be a very violent response from, from the population that's being squeezed. And, and, you know, currencies everywhere are, are in dire straits. And so in that environment, it's like, you know, if, if you're a financial journalist and, and the best you can do is write an article about Bitcoin is dead. <laughs> it's like, you know, or or repeat the argument that Citigroup says that banks are not threatened by Bitcoin. No, hell no. Banks are not threatened by Bitcoin. Banks are threatened by banking. Um, I don't know how many articles I've seen with Citibank, City something, City something, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. Like, it's right. Okay, it's we, like, Citibank yeah. is a bank and they like Bitcoin, all right? <laughs> oh, no. right, right, now the, right now, the argument that uh, Bitcoin will die um, is is – uh, really very, very difficult to make based on past experience. Um, but the argument that city will die, uh, <laughs> as, as a bank or, or that these kinds of mega banks are in very, very big danger, um, is, is the thing that nobody wants to talk about, but is far more likely given the, the fundamentals out there. So to, to me, I think that the bigger issue is, um, how, how does Bitcoin navigate um, in a world where massive currency crisis has become the norm and is spreading uh, contagion all around world economies? That's the real issue. You know, when 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 China starts behaving like Argentina, then what? I mean, wouldn't wouldn't Bitcoin's best interest would be to prepare itself to become the safety net of the world. I mean, when all of these things fail, they're going to need to go to something. 
And uh, there's there's not enough. No, the, I, Bitcoin is not ready for that. And, yeah, and so and coincidentally, on on that same foot, it's funny because there was a quote by um, Vitalik from Ethereum as well. And someone I may ask him recently, you know, if everyone needed to put their money in, for instance, like Ethereum today, could Ethereum handle it? And Vitalik just straight up said, no. Two or three years from now, maybe. Same with Bitcoin. Two or three years from now, there's it's 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 a time period. You can't you can't force it anymore. Like even if the world needed it. Bitcoin's capacity. Yeah, but it's not even two. It's not even two, three years from now. Um, if you're looking at, um, you, you know, you say you say things like everyone putting their money into it. I don't. I don't think people really appreciate what that means. That means 140 trillion dollars in in annual yeah. worldwide GDP. Um, no, there is no financial system that can handle that. Um, That's why there's and, different systems. Right. You need. To, Needs a lot of different systems that um, that are not all correlated. That's another problem. Is the is the right now a lot of the systems that we have are correlated, so they're simultaneously fragile and in the same direction. But this isn't going to happen. Not in two three years. It, it may not even be ready in two three decades, and it may never be the right place to 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 consider parking the world's wealth or even using it to to trade the world's wealth. That's not. I don't think that's a viable idea. Um, so what we need to think about is, can Bitcoin survive the shocks that will be created from the uh, global currency crisis that is happening so that it can get to the next level? Not as a life raft. You can't, you can't, um, you know, get everyone on the Titanic to jump onto the little inflatable and carry them to safety. Um, we need to figure out how we don't get sucked into the vortex and and I, I see people who write in you see this often on Reddit who have this almost gleeful attitude towards uh, world economic crises and collapsing currencies. Uh, that's not a good thing. Um, it's not it's not uh, hey I'm I'm on this life raft so fuck the Titanic I don't care if it sinks. I've got a jet. All right. Because, you know. Your 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 neighbors, your employers, your grocers, your gas station, your every supply line that you depend on is on that Titanic, and they're not coming with you. And if you suddenly find yourself holding your Bitcoin and going, "Oh my precious, it's worth so much," <laughs> you can't get gas or water or food. Um, or you live in an environment like, I mean, we've seen this in, in places like Greece, right? You have middle class families within a couple of months suddenly finding themselves living in their cars. Um, this is not, you, you can't bet on, um, the rest of the system collapsing so that you can benefit Bitcoin. We don't want that. That's not a good idea. A good analogy um, would be like, you know, you're swimming in Mordor, but you're holding the one ring and at any moment it could just melt. <laughs> you can have all the Bitcoin you want, but you know, if you're just swimming in a pool of financial turmoil, nothing, nothing good's coming to that. Right. Uh, like and you've got to realize that we're also, you know, Bitcoin has benefited from significant investments um, in startups and um the interest, you know, a lot of the blockchain interest from the banks has been positive for Bitcoin. It's been driving developments and research and knowledge and training of uh, technical experts and all of that. Um, 
if you have a, a broad and deep-based recession in the economy, all of that in tech investment is going to dry up very, very quickly. A whole bunch of people who are in the tech industry who are currently working in Bitcoin um, will suddenly find themselves without jobs, and that's going to hurt Bitcoin. I'm not saying Bitcoin is the industry or Bitcoin are the companies. It's not. It's a technology that exists independently. Um, but but cutting off a, a, a big supply of, of jobs and investment it isn't going to be fun. You know, if you take this this whole idea and put it into the, I guess, your previously talked about framework of failing to scale gracefully, in order to fail to scale gracefully, which means that you slowly can accommodate more and more things into your platform, you need more and more interest to come into what you're doing. And if the global economy fails and all these other things fail, then they're not going to worry about investing in Bitcoin or trying to move what they're doing into Bitcoin so that it can become more efficient. They're going to worry about putting food on the table. So everything right. exactly. It's like, it's like, it's like, um, I kept getting asked, um, two years ago, why do Greeks still have money in the bank and why don't they withdraw their money and take it elsewhere? It's like, well, you don't understand the reason they have money in the bank is because it just got deposited because it's Friday and it's all the money they have and it just got deposited from their salary and now it's locked in there. They didn't have money in the bank. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not like they had savings. Those are long, long gone. You're talking about purely cash flow, right? And that's the difference is that when, when you get into these kinds of recessionary environments, it's all about, it becomes all about cash flow. And in that kind of environment, investment dries up. We don't we don't want to see that in in Bitcoin. So, you know, you want you want Bitcoin to to continue to operate in a in a relatively healthy world economy, um, so they can offer more options to more people. Um, anyway, I mean, I'm I'm much more concerned at the moment as to as to what happens with with the world economy than what happens with Bitcoin. Bitcoin's doing fine. It continues to fulfill the. The primary roles that it's the the that it's able to fulfill. It's very useful for cross-border transactions, import export remittances, and things like that. And those markets are growing and growing rapidly. The technology is getting better and better. The innovation is accelerating. Um, it's increasingly providing a store of value for distressed economies and populations in places with a have hyperinflation. Um, it's providing a safety valve for people who are trapped in currency controls. And all of those are great applications that within themselves are enough for this to continue to grow for a decade without any new killer apps. Those are killer apps. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to just continue focusing on, on that. This, this, trend, this, this transitions perfectly into what I wanted to, to, to talk to you about. Um, or one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Now that the space has grown so dramatically, it's become impossible to keep up. It's, it's, it's now big enough to where you can't spend all day of every day of your life studying the, the innovations, implications, all the things happening within cryptocurrencies and so on and so forth, and, and stay on track. Watch me try. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're going to try, but you're, you're going to fail because there's too broad and there's too much going on. So in two parts, like how does 
an educator like yourself and which we've we're slowly funding ourselves becoming as well where do like what where do you spend your time trying to keep up or focusing your time to so that you can did you've come up with great analogies to to kind of explain even the simple fundamentals of bitcoin and where it's going and like how do you spend your time and as someone trying to get in how do you catch up well um first of all um i've been i i made a decision back in the beginning of 2012 to do this full time and you know a lot of the uh advantage i've had in this space was being able to focus on this full time when very few people were focused on this full time and dedicate my full attention to it and and catch up right um and it's it's hard to do that if you're doing it as a part-time thing it's very very hard to do it once you're in this uh full time uh then you have to do a lot of filtering um and to me the the two aspects of that are community and technology so first of all um technology you have to filter out a lot of the drama if you spend all of your day reading about how um evil blockstream core is trying to um twist this but uh, you know no it's actually the uh, evil big blockists who are on the other side and who is Satoshi Nakamoto this week and who went on which show and did an interview that got bombed and if you if you waste any of your time on the drama um, you basically are not using that time to learn about the things that are important and also it's completely demoralizing um, so stay off you know, Reddit <laughs> yeah or or be very discerning about what you what you read and how much of your time you expose yourself to that i mean you need to know what's going on obviously but at the same time you you have to filter and filter heavily yeah. uh you know if you if you're not careful you you gradually drift into the space where bitcoin isn't a technology platform it's a a massively orchestrated univision telenovela uh a soap opera of massive dramatic proportions and you can waste your, all of your time following the soap opera and missing the technology so it, it also obscures a lot of the amazing things that are happening i mean the amount of innovation that is happening in in bitcoin and the 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 types of things that are that are being uh delivered to the software you can miss all of that with with all of the drama um check sequence verify um locked in and activated was it three days ago mm -hmm. yeah that's huge uh and not only is it huge that that was yet another feature you know together with check lock time verify adding an entire time dimension to transaction and and the things it unlocks for for payment channels and other technologies but also the fact that it was it was um it was upgraded using the new uh, version bits uh, voting mechanism, which allows multiple parallel soft forks, and that was also activated at the same time. That's huge. Um, and you know the fact that se uh, segregated witness has been merged, uh, the progress that's been made in Lightning Network, um, all of these technologies, and that's just scratching the surface. You know the the stuff that people are working behind the scenes that haven't yet hit the limelight or even. Uh, being fully developed from Merkleized abstract syntax trees to predicate expressions to 
um, confidential transactions and so many other things that are happening. Um, there's an enormous amount of really serious technology being done here, very serious software engineering, very serious science and research in cryptography, pushing the boundaries of cryptography to a level they've never been done in practice before. Um, and people will miss that if they focus on the drama. Uh, the other thing is, the, my other main focus is community. Um, if you interact only with a very limited, loud, vocal minority online, you miss out on the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of people out there um, who do not have a high profile, who do not have a, a big voice, um, who faithfully go to their local meetup every couple of weeks and hang out with other Bitcoiners and exchange information and try to learn and are fiddling with wallets and trying to do little startups or just as a side hobby, just annoying everyone in their family by talking about Bitcoin again. I love it. Um, but you, you see, you, and that's what I do as part of my travels. I, I go to a different community meetup almost every week uh, in a different city, and I meet hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are not big blockists or small blockists or engaged in the drama, who are not VCs or investors or banks talking about how you can do permissioned ledgers, who are just normal people doing simple things with Bitcoin, just excited and enthusiastic and uh, exactly the way many of us were in the early days before it all became very cynical. Um, and it's refreshing to engage with that community and you learn about what's really happening. And what's really happening is this groundswell of adoption, slowly, person by person, one by one, teaching someone new how to use Bitcoin every single day. And, uh, and we're missing that, right? It's, it's very easy to overlook that and think about, well, what the city, what does city group think of Bitcoin? Who gives a fuck? <laughs> what I really, what I really <laughs> think about is what is the, what is the Uber driver think of Bitcoin? Cause you know, I, I take a taxi, I took a Uber, uh, this was three days ago and, um, Uber for the 4th of July and every single taxi ride I, I get into, I start talking about Bitcoin and almost at least half of them by the end of the ride, I've installed a wallet on their phone and I've tipped them in Bitcoin and taught them how to use it. Um, you know, and that is Bitcoin. That is Bitcoin. It's not what Citigroup thinks of it. It's what the it's what the young Uber driver who's sending money home to another country or is interested in technology or has been screwed over by the, by the banks for the last decade. What do they think about Bitcoin? So yeah. how do you stay up to date? You focus on the technology and you talk to the community um, and you learn from both and you try to ignore the drama. Damn, he's got the equation down. That's pretty much it. <laughs> got it. <laughs> It's, it's there now. No need to worry. So, I mean, wow, that question was so awesome. I forgot the question I was about to ask. <laughs> Have you ever tried to on ramp someone? Uh, I mean, it could just be an Uber driver who just wasn't, uh, uh, just didn't get it or, or was a bit resistant. Oh, sure. Absolutely. There's lots of people who are, um, resistant who think it's a, think it's some kind of scam, some kind of internet scam. 
Absolutely. Um, and I don't try to sell people when they're not interested. I usually it starts by me telling people about my story and what I do and why I'm interested in this. And then if they're also interested and want to learn more, it proceeds from there. And if they're not, I then ask them about their life and their story and try to, you know, learn from that. I, I never tried to sell Bitcoin. This is not, I don't do a pitch. It's not worth doing. Either a person needs it and sees the value or they don't. And if they don't, that's fine. Give them a couple of years. Um, and, and they'll, they'll get it. But in the meantime, Bitcoin is useful. It doesn't need the sales pitch. It either is useful to someone or they're not your target, um, mm -hmm. market yet. Yeah. Well said. It can get everyone though. There's an interesting story. I just drove from, uh, St. Louis to Texas, uh, with my father and we happened to, uh, we interviewed, uh, purse, Andrew Lee from purse and I, we listened to the interview in the car. And at the end of the interview, my pops just goes, you know, at this point, I've heard you talk about Bitcoin all these years and I don't really care about it at all, but I do want 30% off on a refrigerator. I'm about to buy. <laughs> so how do I get some Bitcoin? And I was like, are you serious now? <laughs> After all these years, you want it now. So I said to my girlfriend, I was like, you know, you can save all that money you spend on Amazon to buy makeup, you know that? Oh, how do I do that? Well, let me show you. I <laughs> so, you so you managed to get your father involved primarily because he was interested in cold storage. That yep. <laughs> Ooh, nice, nice turnaround. Ooh, oh, yeah. We need yeah, yeah, definitely. I specialize in fantastically cringeworthy puns. <laughs> that was a good one. That was a good one. If you could specialize in something, that's the one I think I'd want. That would be my superpower. Is just terrible puns. <laughs> well, I don't know. Do we wrap it up or do we? Can we keep going? Like what, Andreas? Well, I've got it. Yeah, unfortunately, I've got to start recording um, the next episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin in about uh, five to ten minutes. Um, right. Well, can we hit them? Can we hit them with the uh, question we ask everybody? Of course, we can. All right, uh, this is this is the big fish right here. Let's see how he answers it. Um, Andreas, in in ten words or less, can you describe Bitcoin? Mm -hmm. Turn ten words or less. Hang on a second. These don't count. <laughs> <laughs> the internet of money. That's all four right. words. We'll accept that. I mean, it, it all comes back to that. It's been my go-to for the last four years. Um, it seems to capture all aspects of the fact that it's a platform. It's about trust. It's about um, intercommunication and decentralization. It's the easiest way to explain it to people. It, it still goes back to that. I can expand on that, but usually those four words are, are the focal point. All right, that's the new challenge. And for now on, you got to describe Bitcoin in less than four words. <laughs> less than four <laughs> words. We've had enough failure with ten words. I think we just <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> internet money. There you go. Yeah, money. Money net. One word. <laughs> money net. <laughs> Thank you very much, Andreas, for stopping by. Uh, our You're welcome back anytime. Yes. It's always great to hear you rant about things. It just makes my mind about Bitcoin. Yeah. 
If you ever need a break from all the hyper technical stuff and just a relaxing conversation, that kind of to be our vibe here. That's our vibe here at the Bitcoin podcast. So you could just stop by, you know, rant. <laughs> yep, sounds good. I would love to come back on the show. Uh, you know, send me an email anytime you have my contact details and uh, let's do this again in a few months. Absolutely. Well, uh, I guess that's it. Thanks, Andres. Take care, everyone. Enjoy. Right. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you. Happy, happy having. <laughs> happy having. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Getting wasted. <laughs> that was great. And what you just heard was the interview with Andreas Antonopoulos. It was just an enlightening experience. Um, the man is clearly born to do what he does. Um, just analogies out the wazoo, wit out the wazoo. Of course, ridiculously awesome puns. You heard it all. Um, thanks for tuning in, I guess, or clicking in or whatever you'd say for podcasts. Uh, again and hope you guys had a great happening and you partied hard and maybe even got drunk but didn't do anything you'd regret all right and if you did do something you regret then you could just say i don't give a shit i don't give a shit all right enough <laughs> of that i can't <laughs> i'm gonna be talking like that all week damn it anyways you got anything to add or do we just do the plugs um, we've been plugging purse.io for a couple weeks now, and next week we got the, the CEO on the show to kind of tell you firsthand on kind of the inner workings of the company, and and uh, so that'd be a cool episode. And then other than that, just yeah, so uh, look out for the stay coin safe, Telegraph. everybody, and yeah, Coin Telegraph. Shout out to them, and um, thank you for listening and supporting the show. And you know, oh, we'll yeah. be back. Oh, yeah, quick shout out to Mackie, always, of course coming in the clutch on the interview so all right well bitcoinpodcast.com at the btc podcast you guys know where to find us uh if you don't then i don't know how you stumble across us in the first place probably the interwebs but anyway uh play out